Good morning. Good morning. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, would you please turn with me to Genesis chapter 29? And if you don't happen to have a, a Bible with you this morning, just go ahead and raise your hand and um, someone will bring one to you. Genesis 29, I'm not going to read this just yet, but we're going to be at verse 31 of Genesis 29. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we are a people who are ready, willing, and excited to surrender to what your word says. Not just in our academic knowledge sort of way, but Father, that our observation, our observing it, our doing it, Father, we would be ready to surrender how we live our lives to what we see in the Word. At times, Father God, there are passages that are tricky, those that are hard to get our hands around and and understand just exactly how that works. But Father, it makes no difference as to whether or not it is inspired, it is, inerrant, it is, a gift from you, it is, and truth, it is. And so Father, the shortcoming most certainly is in my mind, not in your word. So God, I pray we would be a people who are ready to surrender when something from your word confronts us or, or something we didn't know. And I ask that you would grant us spirit-wrought trust in the word of the living God. Let the world say what it wants. But that, Father, you have the last word. I pray you would speak to us today, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever been there where you're talking to somebody who's not a believer, and as you're visiting with them, they throw out an accusation. Now, whatever the accusation is doesn't matter, but they throw out an accusation, and you're quick to combat the accusation, but then they take a Bible character and they say, but it's in the Bible. People in this scripture did that. So how can you, Dan Mason, stand here and tell me that that's sin, and yet here it is smack dab in the Word of God? Are you kidding? What kind of hypocrite are you? Now, typically folks are not that discourteous to me, but nonetheless, that is what is coming out in the discussion is, you say that's a sin, and yet I see your precious Bible characters doing that. So how do you handle that? So, beloved, I want to show you how I handle that, and then we're going to come into the text. So this is, this is an introduction into the text we're going to be going into. But this question on marriage in our culture is a, 
extreme battleground. I'm not sure if you're aware of that or not, but um, there is great debate and argumentation over it. For me, theologically, from what I see in the Word, I don't understand the debate. Now, I understand the debate because of the sinful heart of mankind. But from what I see in the text of Scripture, I don't understand the debate. Let me show you what I mean. And I'm going to show you the perspectives of the creation account, Jesus' account, the Apostle Paul's words, and then a precious imagery in Scripture. Now, that could be a sermon in and of itself. We all know that, but that's not my purpose. So Genesis chapter 2, we'll do a speed round, and then we'll get to Genesis 29. Genesis chapter 2. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. And all guys said, Amen. Okay. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of And this is what God said will be. God's design from day one, no sin, one man, one woman, one flesh, husband and wife. There's no yeah buts, there's no what ifs. God can do anything he wants when he's doing this creation. He can do anything he wants, period. But particularly what I mean is in the creation account here, God can do anything he wants. And he says, one man, one woman. Not one man and man, not one woman and woman, not one man, many women, not one woman, many men. One man, one woman, one flesh. Period. Now, you hear that and you go, but a lot's happened. Right? That's the argument that I hear anyway from people is, yeah, but we're smarter now. (laughs) Yeah. You bet your boots were smarter now. So if you would turn also with me to Jesus' account, or perspective rather, in Matthew chapter 19. And what's important about this, beloved, is you see the authority of Jesus Christ stamped on the account in the book of Genesis. Some people, the Genesis is a a hotbed, a battleground. People like to go after it and like to say, this is not true narrative, this is poetic language, and 
blah, 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 and all kinds of ways of getting out of the truth of what the text says. Well, here's Jesus Christ, Almighty God, in the flesh, and listen to where he goes speaking on the topic of marriage. And I lost my place. Chapter 19, verse 3. The Pharisees and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read? Now, right there is just salt in the wound for a Pharisee. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Two genders. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, singular, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Your, speaking of scribes and Pharisees, they would have been so upset at this because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, Genesis account, it was not so. Okay, so you have the Genesis account of God, what he designed and created at the beginning, no sin. Okay, just have that clear in your mind. We come to Christ We've already had the fall, the entirety of the Old Testament time period. Now we come to Jesus and the New Testament time period, and here's Christ smack dab, and they ask him a question about marriage, and where does he go immediately? He goes immediately back to Genesis, giving the stamp of approval of God on Genesis. Nothing's changed. Okay, Ephesians chapter 5. Now, there's a ton of other passages that I could have drawn your attention to between all these, but just for time's sake, I'm moving quick just to show in these time periods, nothing changes. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. The Apostle Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself with splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man sounding familiar, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We go to the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, as an apostle who gives the exact same perspective as the Genesis account and as from the Lord Jesus Christ. The next tier I would throw up there is the tier of, do you notice the imagery used in reference to Jesus and his bride, singular. You catching this? All throughout the scriptures, from the very beginning in creation, to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the apostles, and then this beautiful imagery of the Lord Jesus and his bride. One man, one woman, one, one flesh, joined together. That is the biblical design for marriage. And what any sinful individual wishes to say about that, I do not care when it comes to the sacred text of Scripture. Now, I'm not trying to be a pain. I'm just saying, beloved, be tethered to the Word. And that that potentially could it could potentially be one of the subjects that will get us in the hottest of waters in this world. But I cannot escape what I see from the Word of God. So here we stand. We can't do any other. But back to what I was saying earlier. <clears throat> Somebody goes, yeah, but Dan... That sounds all great and, and, and exciting, and you're going to stand strong and all that. But all your Bible characters have like a, a pile of wives. So how do you justify this? How could you stand there and tell me to do this when Solomon's got how many wives? The wisest guy in history has how many wives? Seriously? How many wives for, for Abraham? How many wives for Jacob? The, the patriarchs of God's people have a bunch of wives walking in utter disobedience to what you just said. Justify it. Do I dare you. And that's that's what typically the, the mindset is, I dare you to try to give me an answer. I love dares. <clears throat> Beloved, we have to have some... We see... Two words that I'd like for you to have in your mind as you're reading through the Old Testament Scriptures are that which is descriptive and that which is prescriptive. So, there are portions of the Old Testament that are clearly prescriptive, meaning this is good... God calls his people to do this, okay? Then there's aspects that are descriptive, meaning it's describing what they did. There's not a command in doing it. Not only that, but when it flies in the face of a prescriptive or a demand, 
you know that that's not for you to follow. So, when you see the Genesis, Genesis account, you see Jesus' perspective, the Apostle Paul's perspective, and the imagery of Christ in the church. When you come to the Scripture and there's an individual who is marrying multiple wives, alarms should be going off everywhere. But it's not telling you, therefore, have many wives. What it's saying is, therefore, it's describing what they did, which I would consider sin from what I see in the God's holy word. Now, when it's descriptive and you're following that track, all you have to do is ask the question, how did it go when they took on more than one wife? Two words, train and wreck. All through the scripture, when you see this happen, it is an absolute mess. So that's what I'm saying, you guys, is in reference to the descriptive portions of the Old Testament scriptures. As you're walking through that, you, you look at it and you go, this isn't, this isn't what God has commanded, but they're going to do it. And then you look and see all of the disarray and horrible things that flow out of it. That should be a very tell to you and to I. It's t- simply telling us what these patriarchs did. And so do you, do you catch this? I'm, I'm trying to arm you in case you come into a combative-type conversation with an unbeliever, um, and you're being very sweet and kind, right? As you're talking with them, do you see the false notion? Their false notion that they're pressing upon. Verse 31. And I don't have a whole lot of time, so I may not get through the whole text that I wanted to get through, but that's okay. Um, we'll, We'll come back. Look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name shall be called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she shall, I'm sorry, therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Now, if you haven't been here the last previous weeks or whatnot, remember Leah, Rachel, Jacob went to go find a wife, fell head over heels for Rachel, told Laban, the father of the two daughters, I'll work for seven years if Rachel can be my bride after the seven years. Laban said, cha-ching. I mean, he said yes. Um, And then after that seven years, Leah was given to him as a wife. Laban cheated him. And then Rachel became his wife, and he said, for another seven years, Rachel can be your wife also, and then he'll work another seven years after that. The whole thing was built up on a sham by Laban to Jacob, giving these two women to him. Um, not last week's sermon, but the sermon before then. If, if you weren't here, and I don't regu- typically do this, but 
That message was a pivotal message I would encourage you to go back and listen to because it really is kind of a hinge for the rest of where we're going to be moving because the 12 tribes of Israel is flowing out of this relationship. Okay, So maybe a couple weeks ago, it's on YouTube somewhere. Um, if, if you want to look that up, I can, I can help you find it. But um, if you missed it, because it's just kind of an important foundation for this. But if you missed it and you're here anyway, cool, here we go. So Leah and Rachel were both given to Jacob, and now Jacob is married to both. Leah is not his favorite, putting it mildly. He does not love her. When it says hated, it's not necessarily hatred. The concept there has more to do with not loving or neglect. So it's not that he's necessarily directing hatred at her. He just doesn't like her. He doesn't want her. He never did want her. His desire was for Rachel. That was the whole plan. He got swindled by his uncle Laban, and now he has two wives. And in God's design, God enables Leah to bear children and Rachel unable to have children at the first in this marriage. God shows grace to Leah. Now, here's here's a pivotal point to this message, is you and I will see God continually be kind to those who have no... um, They have no ability to demand a thing from him because of their sin. Nor Leah, nor Rachel, nor Jacob could say, God, you owe me this. And yet God in his grace, and the passage tells us, goes specifically to the neglected one, to Leah. And the Lord allows her to bear children. Now, in Bible times, and I would argue current, should be current, children were a massive blessing. It was a joy, and that's why I say it's current. It's, it's, it, nothing's changed in that respect. People argue, but nothing's changed. God, in his grace, allows to have children, um, especially male children at this point in history meant a great deal. And so the Lord allows Leah to have these sons. Reuben means, look, a son. Simeon means, the Lord has heard. Levi means attachment, and Judah means praise. These names, uh, the reason for the names, as you kind of see in this passage, is Leah's taking what's happening in the circumstances around her, and based on the circumstances around her, she's putting a name on this child that is born. What you really catch in here, guys, is that Leah's greatest desire is Jacob would love me, that I'd have Jacob's love. You just read it in her language here. Now that I've born a son, finally he'll love me. So you have Leah, whose greatest desire is to be loved by her husband. And you have Rachel, whose greatest desire is to be a mother. And both are miserable. You can stack and pile on the disaster of these relationships that are based on a sin that went against completely God's design for them. Back in Genesis. Okay, more to say about that in just a second. Throughout the Old Testament, it is made very evident that God's... Wow, that's, that's, a, that's terrible. I don't know what that word says. <laughs> it's in my handwriting. 
intention, that'll work, was never for polygamous relationships, and the fallout is always, always disastrous. Now, look down at your Bibles to chapter 30, verse 1, and let's see Rachel's impatient plan B. And it should sound familiar to you if you've been walking through this book with me. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Catch this. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? It's a massive contrast here from Isaac and his son. Isaac specifically went in earnest prayer for the barrenness of his wife. Jacob's response is an outburst of anger. As she's saying, give me children or else I die. My desire is for this. Allow this to happen. Come on, Jacob, make this work. Make this happen. His response is an anger towards her. Now, what's sad about that, you guys, is do you remember the affection this man had? He worked seven years and he goes, oh, it's as if a few days because of how much I love you. Well, now the circumstances have been altered, have they not? To the point that now he's outbursts in anger at her, saying, am I God? Beloved, there are huge earthly consequences to our actions. If you're in Jesus Christ, then there are not eternal consequences for your sin. The eternal consequence for your sin has been paid by Jesus Christ when he died. But don't for a second, dear Christian, think that there won't be consequences in this life for your sin. Now listen to what Rachel says then. Plan B, then she said, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. You remember Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, this whole mess? This is not a new plan B. This is a This is just, again, a trap of impatient, rather than trust God for what he'll give when he gives it, I will help him out and move things along. Well, beloved, we have seen over and over how poorly that decision has turned out. Remember, Bilhah and Zilpah were two maidens that were given to Leah and Rachel as they left their father and then went and and lived with, with Jacob. And so rather than trusting God... And recognizing God's sovereign will in Rachel's life, she says, instead, let's bring another wife in here and go against God's design from the beginning. And she bears a son. Now, um, I want to read this quote from Henry Morris. Morris says, Our own culture today is so different that it is difficult for us to understand the attitude of mind which would give Leah and Rachel vicarious satisfaction when their husband would have sexual relations with their respective maids. The matter of productivity 
And apparently such overwrite had apparently such overriding concern that the question of physical jealousy of their maids did not enter much into it. Perhaps they also uh, reasoned that the more sons they had, either directly or by proxy, the more security they would have in their old age. So you catch that there's a few different things coming into play here in their motive. And so the concept of jealousy or whatnot, I certainly think is present there. But nonetheless, I just want children. And if it's through the handmaid, then that's fine. But I want children for, the, for being seen as of value to Jacob and to the watching world and to be cared for in my old age. That's important, and I don't trust God to provide it, so therefore we'll have the handmaid come and play that role. Look at verse 5 or 6. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Naphtali means wrestling. Dan means judged or God is my judge. Do you see how the circumstances are where they're getting the names for these children? Because this has happened, that's why I'm naming this child this. Because this has happened, that's why I'm naming this child this. But do you hear the confusion, the the mindset of this woman? She's saying, I have prevailed over my sister. Well, but not really. You've taken a plan B and escaped God's design between you and your husband. And no, Rachel, this is not clear biblical godly thinking. But it gets worse, so hold on. Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad, which means good fortune. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher, which means happy. Birth wars. Very, very interesting between these two sisters with all of the potential of envy and strife and jealousy that has been flowing around in this family since day one. What a hot mess of a family. But again, it gets worse. Verse 14, in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found, remember Reuben is Leah's oldest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Now I asked Lloyd Higdon this morning what a mandrake was. And he gave me a very clear response. He doesn't know. So, to make you feel better, Lloyd, I didn't know either. (laughs) Here's what a mandrake is. Real quick, before I read this, just because I love you and this is fun, raise your hand if you know what a mandrake is. Okay. All right. So either I have two smart people or two dishonest people. Here we go. The mandrake is a small, orange-colored, berry-like fruit, much esteemed in ancient times as an aphrodisiac and inducer of fertility. It has been called the love apple and in Western countries, the may apple. 
It has also been used as a narcotic and emetic, especially its large roots. It was no doubt because of its supposed, that's important word, value in promoting fertility that both Leah and Rachel desired it. Now, perhaps you've read this passage over and over, and you just didn't take the time to go after that word mandrake, and you would be just like your pastor if that's the case. But as I read that, I go, oh, well, that makes all sense in the world. Of course they're going to have a desire for this and a debate for this. So listen to what happens as Reuben goes out picking and comes back. He brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Now, oh man, could you imagine the blood boiling moment when Leah, who snuck in and took Rachel's rightly called husband and says, is it not right that you steal my husband? Can you sense the venom in the words? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? (laughs) Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. This is sick. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you. Her husband, I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Now, listen to Leah, which tells us Leah's in prayer. Remember, this is a tangled web, right? Mixed motives. But what I hear in that is that Leah is a woman who has been in prayer asking God, please allow me to have more children. Listen to God had, uh, let me back. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. Now, as... Jacob comes in from the field. She informs him, I've hired you, and now you're going to be with me, and then we're going to bear more children because I gave the mandrakes to Rachel. Now, beloved, I want us to just take a step back, and let me ask you this. Prescriptive or descriptive? I think it's abundantly clear from the passage that these guys, to some level, in some way, are off the rails. In sin, in bartering for their husband. Do you see the mess? And I want to press this very strongly because of the heat on this discussion in our culture. Do you see the mess when the scripture says this is marriage and you say, no, it's not? I have a better idea. So when the world says, but they love each other and they're not hurting anybody, I call balderdash. That's not true. And it will come to intense, painful harm to those who say, never mind the word, I'll go my way, and I'm sure God will bless it. He will not. He will not. And so as you study and see the polygamous relationships throughout Scripture, 
you can't help but come away going, this is a disaster every single time. Now, let me go further before. I have a closing point that I want to draw your attention to, but first, look just a little bit further with me. Verse 19, And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. The name of the daughter is given here. He has other sons and daughters later, but the name is given here because she's going to play a pretty important role further into Genesis. Verse 22. Then God remembered, not because he forgot. It's another way of saying that he directed his undivided attention or his grace upon Rachel. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, which tells me she's in prayer, and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach, and she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Joseph means may the Lord add. I started... The reason we are together in Genesis, okay, we're in chapter 30. The reason this whole thing, we've been studying this book, is because I had a big desire to study the person and the life of Joseph. I was going to do just a short series on Joseph, shorter series on Joseph. And as I kept going further back, I saw, you know what, Genesis is fantastic. Oh, this, oh, I forgot, oh, oh, and then all right, done, we're going to go to Genesis This is the first time I've read the man's name in like two years in this study together. But I'm so grateful to the Lord that we've taken the time because, beloved, the foundation of this book, and I I will confess this, confess is the wrong word, I'll share this with you. Um, I have been profoundly altered in my understanding and my respect and love for this book in particular of how clearly it has spoken directly to the issues in our culture now. Now, I recognize, beloved, our response should be, well, no, duh, Dan. How did you not know that? I did know that. But I've been moved in the the depths of the study of it week in, week out, that our God so precisely speaks to our culture now from his word. So don't hide it. We're doing greater harm to people by hiding it, not showing greater love to them when we hide it. And God, in his grace, gives Rachel Joseph. There's one more son. He's not in this passage yet. Benjamin will be born to Rachel as well. And you will have the 12 tribes of Israel that we will see these 12 men become the 12 tribes. And you'll see all that God does through those 12 tribes. Let me close on this point. I have made the statement that this is a hot mess. I've made the statement that this is a disaster. I've I've used that language on purpose to draw to this conclusion, to ask you this question. What does a sovereign God do with a disaster? He sovereignly uses every bit of it for his good purpose in the long run. The Lord... The Lord is at work in this. And this is where, beloved, we have to do some very clear theological work, okay? Remember the promise to Abraham, and remember the promise to Isaac, remember the promise to Jacob. God has said, this is what will be. He didn't give the details that it was going to work out like this, but he has said what it will be. God Almighty promised that he would give many descendants. 
This crazy arrangement with Jacob and these women is fulfilling that promise. How does this work? Well, here's where it's interesting. The disobedience of man does not thwart, I love that word, thwart God's sovereign decree. He will always accomplish his good purpose. At the same time, man is responsible for the actions of his will. Now, obviously, beloved, God's sovereignty and the will of man, it, it, we follow it up this track until it reaches a point and my brain officially stops and it's over, or our brain. But there, So there's mystery here. But what I see is the people who are acting here are held accountable for their sinful actions. But they do not throw God off from his great and glorious purpose. Why am I saying that? Well, think about it. Judas could come to the Lord and say, hey, without me, you wouldn't have been crucified and saved all these people. That's not a biblical conclusion. No, in sin you did what you did. In impatience you did what you did. But God draws straight with crooked pencils. God takes a disaster and accomplishes a glorious purpose with the disaster. Now let's all raise our hand and say, real quick, Dan, what do you mean he works with a disaster? Well, let me give you exhibit A. I stand before you. Spiritually speaking, prior to Christ, I'm a disaster. A backbiter, hater of God. A lost man, lost in sin, a lover of sin, dead. And God, in his perfect grace, takes that and makes it a new born-again person for his glory. But he does the same in the interactions of people. And I am the first one to say this is very difficult for us to get our mind around when we see something horrific take place and we say, God is working all things together for good right now in the midst of this situation. Now, here's the thing, beloved. This is why I prayed what I prayed at the beginning of this message. You can either surrender to that as truth, or you can say, no way. But it's what the Word says. It's what the Scripture says. God will have perfect justice. God will have His perfect decree, His perfect plan. The very nail that entered the hands of His Son was a pre decreed nail to enter that hand in that nanosecond. And you think of all the actions of all the humans that led up to that one second and go, are you telling me God is in charge of that? Yes. Now, please hear me on this, guys. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying that you even have to buy it, per se. I hope you do. What I'm saying is I'm utterly convinced of it. Every fiber of my being believes that. I don't fully understand it. But I'm utterly convinced by the Scripture, God's sovereign decree will completely be done, period. But the disobedience of man, there will be perfect justice. Now, here's where it's hard for you, and then I'll pray. Here's where it's hard for you. Here's where it's hard for me. Here's where it's hard for us. Because we could look at this this morning and we could say, you mean they get off? Free of charge? Because of their... So God uses it for good and they get off. No. Three categories. Number one, hell. Everybody outside of Christ 
is going to eternal torment in hell forever. Two, Jesus Christ has paid the penalty and perfect justice was served the day on the cross for your sin and for the sins of all those who are his. Then there's a third category I'd just like you to chew on. And I've already stated it in this message. There are earthly consequences to our actions. Severe, painful consequences to our actions. And so either you will pay eternally for your sin, or Jesus has paid eternally for your sin. And beloved, if Jesus has paid eternally for your sin, this is why we glory in the gospel and seek to follow him with all of our lives. But don't for a second think that since Christ died for your sin, therefore the sin you entertain in this life will not have incredible consequences on you and those around you. So, said a lot. Hopefully you consider that, think about that, and um, send all your inquisitions to Mitch Tingley. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.